Kate, do you hear the birds singing and the grass rustling in the wind? Yes, but only because you asked me to add some sounds of birds singing and grass rustling in the wind. And do you hear that sound now, Kate? That's the sound of the fourth wall being destroyed for our listeners. But anyway, as for the other sounds, the ones of birds and grass, well, I asked for those in part for our well-being, so we can believe, even for a moment, that we're sitting together in a park in Budapest making this podcast intro, and not, in fact, in different countries, happily, yeah, definitely happily trapped with our families, waiting for the global pandemic to end. That's very nice of you. I'm a very nice person, but I also did this so that listeners can imagine that today's podcast interview took place not in a hotel room a few months back, but maybe in an urban park in Barcelona, in an imaginary future when we were allowed to sit in parks and have conversations with people. You mean the conversation you had with Panyata Katsila, the political ecologist who works at the Barcelona Lab for Urban Environmental Justice and Sustainability? The very one. The one you spoke to about the article, Nature-Based Solutions as Discursive Tools and Contested Practices in Urban Nature's Neoliberalization Processes, that she co-wrote with Isabella Angualowski, Francesco Brauro, Johannes Langemeyer, Filka Sekulva, and James J.T. Connolly for the journal Environmental and Planning E. Yes, I bet you wish you didn't have quite so many co-authors when you had to read out that line. But anyway, now that I think about it, you might even say that the sounds of birds chirping and grass rustling in the wind is maybe our sonic nature-based solution for this show, Urban Arena, a podcast about sustainable and just cities. A nature-based solution that we need now that you're in the USA and I'm in Budapest. And do you hear that? That is the sound of tumbleweed. Let's listen to what Panyata has to say about nature-based solutions. So we're here today. I'm speaking with Panyata because I want to know what a nature-based solution is. So what is one? Uh, So basically, nature-based solution is a concept that uses nature as an answer to challenges of sustainability, let's say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the things that have been identified as nature-based solutions in the urban context, let's say, are um, as different as greenways and uh, green corridors, so trees on a street that provide some services um, to uh, green roofs, urban gardens, or even uh, in the more peri-urban context, you can see nature providing some services like cleaning water or um, protecting from floods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the reason why we're talking is because you recently published a, a co-authored article and you did um, as well as a quite an in-depth literature review on the term and, and, and around the around the sort of adjacent concepts. You also looked at two particular cases in Barcelona. So before we start talking a bit more conceptually about what issues there may be with nature-based solutions, can you tell me first of all about these two particular nature-based solutions in Barcelona? Yeah, so in Barcelona, uh, we looked at a green corridor, which was a a renovation of um, uh, something like a promenade that used to be there, but gray and and, and left a degraded, let's say, in a degrading area of of Barcelona, of that neighborhood. And they turned it into um, a green corridor that also has a social function because it provides areas for kids to play, people to walk, restaurants to put their chairs. um, And and it's pretty biodiverse. in comparison to other streets, which usually will only have like one type of tree uh, along along the along the way, and the other um, case that we studied was an urban garden, which was part of a wider policy in Barcelona of taking advantage of empty empty lots, places that um, are temporarily out of use, 
And that garden also had a lot of uh, other functions apart from growing vegetables. Uh, it, it included a space for meeting, for communities to um, to gather, for events to take place, etc. So it was like a social center outdoors combining uh, combined with an urban garden. And just for those people who may be familiar with Barcelona, what are the names of those two places? Yeah, so the first one was Passage de Saint Juan, um, and the other one was called Espais Germanets, and it was... Uh, they were both lo- they're both located in the Aixample Barrio of Barcelona, one of the most dense uh, dense neighborhoods um, in the center of Barcelona. Mm-hmm. So I suppose some people may see, especially people in uh, in government in, in many countries may say, ah, nature-based solution like this, this is a, a triple win. You know, it's a win for the economy, it's a win for local people, and it's a win for the environment. So wonderful. So well, what's the, what's the issue? Yeah, no, uh, actually, this is part of the definition of nature-based solutions, that they're supposed to address um, environmental and social challenges. There is the implicit um, assumption there, especially in the EU, the way they've been seen and discussed in the EU, that they will also bring economic benefits. And it's interesting because they came about um, right after the crisis. So I think it was a way of um, uh, sparkling innovation um, and boosting the economy in ways that are or seem sustainable. What's the problem with them, you say, mm-hmm. if it's such a triple win? Well, uh, as in all other so-called triple win solutions, there's always a, th- there are always trade-offs and balances. And um, in each case, you see how, in fact, people have to prioritize certain things over others. And from the review that I've done and others, we see that usually, you know, in the end, it's the economic priorities that overtake uh, social and environmental ones so that's part of the problem and can you talk about how this problem uh, materialized itself in the two cases that you looked at so very briefly in the first case when we're looking at um, the passage de saint Juan, and it used to be a part of the sample neighborhood where was there was a lot of um, wholesale shops mostly of chinese ownership there was a lot of infrastructure like buildings and sidewalks and uh, uh, greenery that the city had that were degrading or not being taken care of. And the neighborhood was considered um, economically also not so alive, let's say, for Barcelona standards. Uh, And not a lot of tourists went there either. So what happened there was that with um, with its renovation and transformation into a green corridor, a lot of parallel things took place which maybe were not so visible as the greenery that uh, arose and it's beautiful and it's nice and people actually use it very much. Uh, But at the same time, the Chinese ownership shops disappeared, partly because there was a change in what could be done in terms of um, some policies that regulated what kind of vehicles could go in this in this area and whatnot so like you know indirectly this affected those businesses but also rents got very high and they couldn't didn't make sense for them to be there anymore and at the same time a lot of licenses were given to new bars and restaurants to use that public space which was it wasn't it is public space but they were licenses given for them to use it as a terrace for their bars and restaurants so what you see now is that uh, in most like magazines about Barcelona if you google uh, Paseo de San Joan you'll find like the best foodie um, district in town and you know there's all these um, new new businesses mostly um, for food and drinks that were not there before and one might ask and what's the problem with that well the problem is not that there's new types of foods being offered, but the problem is that their prices are much higher than the previous restaurant and bar that was there. So the people that used to live there um, have less options of, you know, 
kind of accessible um, coffees or, or, or sandwiches. Um, and so it has affected a little bit who can live there and who cannot, and, and who can own a business there and who cannot. Mm-hmm. So that's the one case. In the other case, it's a bit more complex because um, the trajectory of what happened since the the city first announced that there's this empty lot and we want to somehow make use of it until now, the government has changed. Um, so at the beginning, it was clearly, uh, you know, it was motivated by this idea that land lying idle doesn't bring any benefit to anybody. So let's give it to people to, to do something with it. It was a win-win for a movement of people who have already started occupying places to make gardens, um, but also for the city government, which would seem like, okay, you know, we're doing something nice here and we are um, preventing it being degraded, preventing, you know, crime uh, taking place there and so on. So um, this, the Spice Germanetes is only a small part of a greater plot of land that uh, was not being developed during the time of crisis because there wasn't enough money to develop it. But the plan was that there there was going to be a house for the elderly, a new school for the neighborhood, which was also very much needed. Um, But this was all in pause because there was no money to do it. That on the one side. On the other side, the neighbors of Eichampla have been for a long time um, claiming that we need green space. You know, we're we're, um, drowning in concrete our kids have nowhere to play, we want a new park, uh, and we want a place where we can meet. So there was a huge demand to occupy that place and actually make a big park that is uh, governed by the people of the neighborhood, by the different associations. And throughout the years, they've tried to do that, and that failed, because in the end, the school was constructed and all the great developments took place. However, because uh, of that garden, which was the Spice Manetas I was talking about in the beginning, um, because this became a very symbolic place um, for the neighborhood, but for the whole of Barcelona as well, and because the government changed and uh, became more progressive and supported like uh, initiatives of commoning, of urban commons and so on, they decided to protect it. It is it's still there, um, although a lot of changes has, have, have happened to it, to who is part of it now, who is in charge of it now, etc. So this case is a bit more complex to say, you know, who's the winner, who's the loser of, or what of those three wins have been won. Uh, Mm -hmm. The three of them have been completed in different ways for different people. So I suppose you could say that in each, maybe now talk a bit more conceptually again, that in any sort of nature-based solution, in these cases of, in these two cases in Barcelona or more general, you have to always ask a question about, um, I suppose, what nature is doing or how is it being mobilized or whom is it being mobilized for? And is there something like general we can say about this? Is this something like, uh, I don't know, um, by throwing in the word nature-based solution, it sounds almost, I don't know, apolitical or, you know, um, or somehow declassed, like no sort of, that there shouldn't be any class interest there or so on. I mean, is this what you found from doing the review? Then in general, nature-based solutions do not ask the questions about how and for whom um, nature is being mobilized and in what form? So there's two issues here. One is the term itself. You know, first of all, it's very prescriptive. So you're saying this is a solution. And so whoever says it has the power to define it. And not only you're defining the solution, then you're also kind of uh, defining the problem. Um, So by saying that this is the solution, say, to a lack of biodiversity, then um, you're assuming a certain understanding of of the problem of the lack of biodiversity. so what I'm saying is that one problem with with a term is that it's very prescriptive and that it's very top down. So 
it's it's it always will be problematic if somebody outside of the context uh, defines something as a solution, right? The the solution should come from the people who are experiencing the problem. Mm-hmm. So um, that's one part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that na- the part of nature in the nature-based solution. So uh, how do we understand nature? Uh, how do we um, think that we can control it or operationalize it? Or you know, what kind of things do we see as coming out of nature as benefits? And then who is to, to, to grab them? As you say, you know, it can be an issue of, of class, of distribution, of justice. Uh, but it could also, you know, go deeper into what are what is our relationship with nature how do we understand nature because uh, we all uh, might understand different things with it in the examples that we looked at you know in the green corridor nature are the trees um in the ex- example of the urban garden nature is much more than the biophysical aspect of it um the kind of services they offer you know c- going back to the, the other literature on ecosystem services or green infrastructure and so on we see that there's this kind of mentality that nature is out there and we can use it for our benefit. Um, and I think there's something truly wrong about this because it kind of seems to erase historical connections with nature and um, and the incep- that society and nature are inseparable in that there's always power relationships kind of mediating our relationship with nature and that cannot be erased. So if we're, th- if we're thinking of nature as something outside of our society, then we're turning a blind eye to to the power relations that are involved in there mm-hmm. if if i'm clear you are you are and it's, it's, so it's interesting I'm, I'm just trying to think as well is because we are we are op- operating here i guess on a, on a couple of different levels so one is okay there may be let's say for instance there is a community garden which is set up somewhere almost you know on a local scale and nobody's really talking about it and then somebody maybe yourself uh, maybe the local government maybe an eu funding scheme that maps these things says this is a nature-based solution and um, so and suddenly by naming something as a nature-based solution lots of things happen so first of all it may suddenly become a trendier thing it may even actually may actually even by naming something by bringing it to light it gets put in like you know some whatever some you know Ryanair in-flight magazines the next time someone's in town they go and check it out and it leads to you know gentrification and displacement in the area so I'm wondering how much of power do is going on when we start to name these things as certain things both for yourself as a researcher but also for funding mechanisms and city governments and so on because those people might never have thought of anything as a nature-based solution they simply thought of it as somewhere they can grow some tomatoes um, not so far from their house yeah so uh, community gardens are especially interesting in this regard because we've seen in many places that they have actually been the reason for gentrification taking place because they become so trendy that people want to live around them and so on. But the problem in the particular case, for example, that we saw is that not any community garden would be named nature-based solution. An urban garden can be many different things. It can be a plot of land cut into 10 pieces and each family has one piece and cultivates and never interacts with each other. It can be a garden that is um, cultivated in common. So a lot of people having to negotiate and necessarily meet and discuss. So they're therefore kind of bring a more uh, political fermentation as well to the thing. Or it can be something that the city, you know, and it can be something that the city controls or that people control themselves. So if it's uh, uh a, a, a garden that has been created by um, some groups that have no institutional, like formal institutional standing, and if that garden uh, was made on uh, on the basis of occupying land, it wouldn't be a nature-based solution because there would be no economic benefit from it. 
So the particular garden was a nature-based solution was identified by us researchers um, who are basing uh, our research on certain definitions which are you know put together by some other researchers or you know um, I don't know think tanks. Um, we selected that garden because it was addressing an economic problem or a problem of policy which was that land that is lying empty is not good for a city. It doesn't contribute to its brand and it can also be dangerous, right? Or other stuff might happen, okay. But the key aspect of this particular um, nature-based solution was that it was only for a short amount of time that this was given to, to people, to community groups, to, um, yeah, to cultivate or to use for, for whatever activities they did there. So it was short-lived. So one of the interesting things that I found in your paper was you, you were you were talking about the relationship between nature-based solutions and um, neoliberalism. Neoliberalism as what um, many people now are using to describe a form of governance, which is um, seeing a changing role of the state vis-a-vis -vis people who um, yeah who live within a certain country or within a certain city, and sort of like you know adding you know a bigger role for for private capital and a diminishing role for the state in certain areas um, and uh, almost like sort of the state laying laying the groundwork for capital to come in and uh, people to to make money out of things previously where we didn't allow certain um, money to be made so what's the link between something like that and a nature-based solution so what we're trying to say in the paper is that nature-based solution as a concept can be a tool towards uh, nature's neoliberalization which means that it's a very um, vague term still. Uh, everybody can um, interpret it the way that it fits them. So what we're saying is that living in a neoliberal climate, nature-based solution is a concept that can easily be uh, used towards, uh, towards the, these kind of goals. Um, and by neoliberalization, we mean two things, both the let's say the retraction of the state so you know where the state was providing some things they no longer provide them including greening or um, taking care of that greening etc but also uh, roll out neoliberalism so the state um, providing spaces for people to get involved and to take responsibility of something that before was uh, was of the of the states, so in the individualization of responsibility as well as the privatization of of certain um, sectors, and yeah, so I think um, what we see now is happening uh, is that it has helped it become a, a tool of neoliberalization, but also the way it is defined uh, in most of the of the policy papers that you find so far is that you know it's always like um, it always assumes that everything that happens in cities or otherwise uh, has to be for sustainability and growth. The, there's nowhere, you know, you can never find in any of these papers that a solution would be a, a solution that doesn't include growth, economic growth, I mean. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's interesting. So I'm thinking about that. I mean, um, what's the spe specificity of nature there? I don't know. Maybe maybe there is one. Maybe there isn't. So let's say we were today not talking on the Urban Arenas podcast, but the I don't know Urban Arts and Cultures podcast. And you just written in a paper that talked about how you know governments were using. I don't know, the establishment of cultural houses as a way of, you know, rolling out neoliberalism in certain parts of the city. And you could say, okay, that, and that we know that happens, right? Where, you know, they go into an area, okay, we've made a cultural house and then afterwards. So what's the, is there something specific here about nature um, as opposed to, you know, any other tool with which the state um, sort of 
opens up areas for yeah capital accumulation yeah i mean it's very trendy nowadays isn't it to talk about uh climate change and nature and how we have to address the multiple you know uh, challenges that we're facing with regards to environmental um destruction so as as i say you know our article begins with the the fact that even people like uh, greta and uh, george monbiot also um talk about nature-based solutions or climate cli natural climate solutions there are various terms that go out there thinking you know we our objective um, is to fight climate change and we can use nature to do this so this is an idea that most people would feel very comfortable with uh, even the most conservative even even in the extreme right people will kind of uh, feel comfortable with the idea that we have to take care of our environment but once you start um, digging more into the mechanics of how this would work you find a lot of contradictions so i think nature there is being used as a capture all term in terms of in terms of uh, ideology or in terms of politics because there is the agreement apart from some you know climate denialists or whatever but there is a general agreement that the environment is something that we need to protect and that we've so far not done so well so i think it's this um yeah, it's like sustainability, that nobody will tell you sustainability is a bad thing. But uh, look where we are now, since Rio 1992. Mm -hmm. So it, then it leads me maybe to the to the last question. Um, firstly, I wish one day I hope to become so famous, I don't need a last name like Greta. But um, <laughs> you just said Greta. I said one day I hope I'm so famous. Yeah, people just say Ian. Um, but uh, but uh, no, my, my serious last question is uh, so so then can something like a nature-based solution, and we've recognized, and you talked about how in the case of the community garden in Barcelona, there are positive, you know, um, things things going on there. So can and can nature-based solutions, however we understand these, can they escape the ideology of neoliberalism? Or are they basically always doomed to be subsumed under this sort of, you know, the, the current form of governance which is prevalent in Europe? I mean, I think there's great potential in the idea that um, integrating ecosystems and nature in cities and generally using the functions that nature itself has and uh, that this can generate very um, innovative ways of uh, either adapting to climate change or mitigating it or, or generally providing you know a better environment a more healthy environment uh, to live in but um, we always have to ask the question with whom are we making this like f with whom and for whom so um then the concept of nature-based solutions is not necessarily you know a bad concept despite everything that i have said before but i think it needs to be um brought down to to to, to the people who actually face the the problems in the cities um and i think that we as researchers have a role to play in this so you know how do we use concepts in in our research that sometimes funding agencies dictate you know how we write our proposals or our papers or um, or or how we shape our teaching we still have to uh, be very critical of those concepts and try to reimagine ways to use them with and for the communities that we are studying thank you so much for coming on the urban arenas podcast thank you thank you <laughs>
Well, it's a it's a hopeful it's a hopeful topic for sure. Um, I think one of the things that she mentioned, which is so interesting to me, is the idea of sustainability as this very bipartisan issue. As in, you know, conservatives agree, liberals agree, it's all a problem. Climate change needs to be addressed. But then, when you get down to it, I think a lot of people you know, like to talk about it as being important, but then don't actually put money behind it to solve issues. Yeah, I guess it's um, I guess it's what's hidden when everyone seems to agree, because I guess it's like it's not even maybe necessary about putting money behind stuff. You might find individual cases where people can all come into agreement about that money should be put into a particular nature based solution or any sort of green initiative. But it's about, I suppose, initiatives or ideas or, or, or programs that actually challenge the fundamental structures of the economy. And, and once you have any sort of sort of greening uh, initiative there, then I guess the, the, the general support for something might fall away. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, what, what do you reckon? Do you think it's like, a, do you think it's a, something worth keeping then, this sort of idea of or concept of nature-based solution? I mean, is it, I mean, it's super trendy now. I mean, I've seen courses on it everywhere. I mean, what's your sort of general feeling about the idea of something that's called a nature-based solution? Well, I think it's the future. That's the only that's the only possible way forward if we're actually going to solve these big climate change issues that we're seeing. And I think it's all a matter of of making these nature-based solutions more able to kind of push people in the right direction. So, Panyota was talking about the community garden. Currently, I think the way it stands, that just could never compete with something that is in our capitalist model. So, I think one way to address that problem is to make community gardens more economically efficient or more economically viable so that they can compete with today's landscape. I really think that's the only solution. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's funny. I mean, I guess everybody everywhere now is is probably not thinking about the sort of issues we're discussing in our podcast, but rather about the global pandemic uh, that we're all in. And, and I and I didn't want to talk about it, but then I'm just now, maybe because it's on my mind and it's on all of our minds, it just comes there naturally, is that we had such, that nobody really had, I'd say, food security before. Like, I mean, we had it on a level of a European Union. Um, I don't know whether or not you had it in America, whether you could just produce all the food that you eat, but we got very used to having very sort of wide supply chains and, um, or very long supply, supply chains, rather. And then I guess, like, within cities, the idea of growing your own food, like, a, or, or, you know, having some sort of community allotment food growing might seem a few months ago to be, like, sort of a nice addition to an area but now it might even seem more fundamental than it's ever seen before because okay like you know a nature-based solution like having um, a patch of land turned into a community garden that can grow its own food a few months ago might seem like okay that's nice for the environment and it's nice to give people something to do but maybe now it seems more vital than before. Absolutely. And you, you can see a lot of these community farms, you know, where people sell directly to the consumer, you know, their sales have increased dramatically because people aren't necessarily wanting to go to grocery stores, the grocery stores are experiencing supply chain problems. And so these kind of, you know, quote unquote, elite farms that used to just cater to a certain type of population are now expanding their their customer base. So I, I do think that is, that's really interesting. I think what worries me is that even though this pandemic could be a real source for change in many ways and how we do things, how we interact with the climate, with other people, my fear is that people's just general stress levels are too high to be able to think of of new way of doing things and then actually keeping to it. So I think this might also get us back to our old ways of doing things, which is not a nature-based solution. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I wonder then how much of it is about na- naming. So we're calling it a nature-based solution. I mean, in America, you're talking a lot about it. We talk a little bit about it in the UK, copying basically your lead, which is the Green New Deal. I don't want to talk about that sort of very particular political um, movement right now, but I'm just wondering something, it is something like how to name uh, an initiative, in this case, a solution that sort of wins over people who are not naturally drawn towards something with nature in the title, maybe, but might something like a Green New Deal when it sounds about, you know, employment and about building and about growth. Um, but I'm wondering whether like something then that's called like a nature-based solution, is it, you know, inherently off-putting for people who aren't already drawn towards environmentalism? Mm, that's, a, that's a good question. But I, I really, I sometimes think we tend to focus too much on, you know, how to name things, what kind of effect naming has, instead of just like doing the work. I think naming something makes it more, you know, maybe brings more money to a certain issue, brings more attention to a certain issue. It also has problems, as Panyota mentioned, you know, with, with gentrification, for example, in cities. But to a certain degree, sometimes people get too hung up on you know, the idea of naming something, and then we get away from the real important issue, which is actually doing the work and looking to solve problems. Well, maybe that's just a problem with academics. We just like to uh, name things or come up with new names for things which already have perfectly good names. I mean, this is actually interesting. I was talking with Panyota before or after the interview when she was talking about some of the issues when the article went through peer review. Isn't that like, what do you call a nature-based solution? Because some of the things they were looking at that were called nature-based solutions were not called nature-based solutions by the people who did them. Uh, but they've been like called nature-based solutions afterwards um, by other people. And then now the article was critiquing nature-based solutions so there's a little bit of a you know an issue there going around but this is now everything is getting called a nature-based solution because it's one of these vague terms that's suddenly in vogue but I guess this is um, maybe a problem of academic production in the sense that like academics are constantly forced to produce things and so they constantly have to come up with new names for things and when they come up with new names for things then uh, somebody else has to come along and critique those new names so I guess uh, this sort of naming game is a is a is a yeah one of these sort of academic games that isn't particularly useful when uh, when it comes to real world interventions and I think actually in Panyota's article this issue comes out as well. But I, but I mean, to give to give, give academics credit, I think once you name something, you can talk about it. You can bring these things up in government, in business conversations. And so, you know, naming something is pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I don't hate academics. I, I, I sort of pretend to be one sometimes as well myself. <laughs> um, but um, I don't know uh, about you, Kate. I, well, actually, I do know about you that you're under a blanket in your parents' closet and I'm under a blanket uh, in our bedroom and I'm getting really hot. So maybe it's time to uh, end this uh, pretend studio situation and also end our podcast. Could you remind people of how they can get in touch if they want to get in touch? Yes, we do want to hear from you. You can shoot us an email through the contact form found at our website, urbana-arena.eu, or reach us at urbana at ceu.edu. And you can also find us on various social media accounts, Twitter or Instagram at the handle arena underscore urban. All right, Kate, thank you so much. Uh, It's been a pleasure, as always, speaking with you. Hopefully we'll get to do uh, a podcast um, face-to-face in the same room sometime in the future. Yeah, I would like to stop recording in a closet pretty soon, hopefully. (laughs) Let's, Let's hope. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye. This podcast is part of the Free Year Project Urbana. 
urban arenas for sustainable and just seas. It was funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme.